Um, if, if you're joining us newer here, um, we have been going through the book of Hebrews, and this has been, man, such a, a rich, and it, it has caused us and it forces us to really dive into Scripture. You cannot just kind of skim over Hebrews and uh, get what you're supposed to get out of it out of it without saying, okay, Lord, help me understand the context. Help me see what the writer of Hebrews is really trying to portray in this portion of the Bible. And so we've been going through this today. We find ourselves in Hebrews chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 8. And just to remind us a little bit of the context, because we've taken a, a couple weeks here uh, from Hebrews you remember this, this book, we're not sure who the author is, are we? You know, and that's not necessarily as important uh, to try to figure that out. What we're trying to see is what is the message that we're, we're meant to get from this overarching picture of this book. And it, it is this, that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than anything else. Jesus is better than the old ways that we understood maybe by default if we grew up in some kind of church traditions. Jesus is better than our own ability to save ourselves. Jesus is better than old systems. Jesus is better than everything else. And the writer of Hebrews is wanting the, uh, the hearers and the readers of this book to get that message every single time. You're going to see this repeat is that Jesus is better than this, Jesus is better than this, Jesus is better than this. Because he's writing to a group of people who grew up with a faith, it's a Jewish faith, and they grew up understanding that the way you get to God, the way that you make yourself better, the way that you, get re, uh, you, that you receive forgiveness, the way that you um, find your way to the throne room of God, as it were, would be to do all these regulations and rituals and keep all these laws. And not that the writer of Hebrews is saying, okay, now that Jesus has come, we don't need laws anymore. He's not saying that, but what he's saying is the ability to keep these laws is not based on your own power. It's actually based on the empowerment of who Jesus is. And so he's going to continue to remind us the truth that Jesus is better. And so that's what we're going to do again this morning with Hebrews chapter 8. Now, let me, let me kind of set our trajectory here. This morning, I want to use the example of marriage. As I read through this chapter, it would seem that although the writer is not using the words marriage, he uses a lot of what we would say this word covenant, covenantal language. And if you think of one of the most beautiful pictures of what a covenant is here on earth, it is that of marriage. I know that the world would probably use marriage or would understand marriage mostly as probably like a contract, right? Um, it would be like, well, okay, we both agree as we head into this partnership in life is that if you do this, then I will do this. And if I will do this, then I can expect from you to do this. And it's this contractual kind of relationship. Actually, the Bible says that marriage, that, that, that can be further from the truth of what marriage is. Marriage is a covenant. Marriage, and if you don't know what covenant is, it's an unbreakable promise. Not unbreakable promise in the sense of it doesn't matter what the other parties involved do, this promise will remain not based on the quality or insufficiency of the participants involved in that covenant. This covenant remains whether somebody is faithful 
or not to this promise. This is why I would say in marriage, like prenuptial agreements, man, that is not a good thing. Now, some of us go, no, well, celebrities, celebrities need prenuptial agreements because they're a hot mess, aren't they, right? If you've been following anything that's been going on social media or in the world, you know, Johnny Depp and I don't know what his, Amanda Heard, I think is her name. Amber Heard, okay. Uh, I mean, you're watching this drama unfold in the courtroom of how, well, you're worse. No, you're the poopoo head. No, you're the poopoo head. Well, I should get everything because you're the poopoo head. No, you're the poopoo head. And it's just this like, well, you didn't fulfill your end of the bargain. Well, you didn't do it and you didn't worse. And they're arguing over who is worse. And they're both, oh Lord, help us. And what God does in his infinite power and in his infinite love and in his infinite wisdom is what he does is he creates an institution. It's not man-made. It's an institution created by God, marriage, to represent the beauty of the gospel, to represent this covenantal relationship that we have with God to one another. And so as we unpackage this, it would be almost as if the writer of Hebrews in chapter 8 is going to say, hey, keep in mind how a marriage is meant to work, and now I want you to understand this covenant relationship that we have as those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus and Jesus himself to us, that there's an old system, but there's a better way, there's a better covenant. All right, you ready? Yeah, okay, great. All right, thanks. It feels amazing. I'm so stoked you guys. All right, so let's turn to Hebrews chapter 8. We're going to start reading in verse 6, and we're going to read through the rest of the chapter all the way to 13. Here's what it says. But as it is, that's speaking about this old system, what the writer of Hebrews does is he gives us like foundation. Hey, here's the way the old system worked. But in verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Everybody say better promises. Verse 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let's pray this morning. Jesus, we we sit here this morning with gratitude in our hearts for your word. Gratitude in our hearts that you have saved us. 
that you've set us apart. Um, It was by your mercy and your grace that you called us to yourself. And as as we listen and as we subject our hearts and our minds to the authority of your word, will you help us this morning, we ask. Help us, Holy Spirit, to to subject ourselves to You. Help us where there's areas of our lives that we don't either understand or where we're resisting Your will and Your ways. Will You help us to surrender? Will You help us to know? Will You help us to follow You better this morning? And we thank You that this is Your promise, that You will do that if we confess You as Lord and Savior, that You are faithful to help us follow you. So we say, Lord, do what you want in our hearts this morning. Let your word bear much fruit in us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Everybody says, amen. All right, so here the writer of Hebrews gives us this thesis. He gives us this breakdown. He says, man, the old system was like this, but actually Jesus is better. Jesus is better than this old system that you you knew and that you grew up in. And then what he does is he quotes the Old Testament. He gives us a breakdown of of how God used to relate to us and how the the heart and the will and the desire of God for us as we follow him now calls us into something that is better than this old system. And he names Jesus specifically and says his promises, his ways are better than this old kind of system that you had before. And I think what, what would be helpful this morning is we ask ourselves this question, is what, are the, what are the better ways, what are the better promises that the new covenant, so to speak, offers for us as we follow Christ? Because if we don't understand this, friends, what we, what we tend to do is we default towards what we know or we default towards what we think subjectively is right and wrong. And we know that Scripture always is objectively right and wrong, isn't it? And we know that what Scripture does is always point us toward the right way. And so for us this morning, what we have to do is say, okay, Lord, help me not default back into these old things. Help me see how the better covenant works. And then, Lord, help me to apply that to my life, right? And so what we're going to do is we're going to take three things here this morning. That's how we always do it. If you're newer to Southlands, there's always three things. That's just the way it works. We're going to look at how three of these points that I believe the writer of Hebrews is going to help us see to see what are the better promises, how to contrast that between the old system. All right, so number one, here we go. How is this new covenant that the writer of Hebrews says are better promises? Number one, I think it's up on the screen, is it's based on internal transformation by God, not external conformity of man. Let me say that again. Based on internal transformation by God, not external conformity by man. This is how he says it in verse 10, just recapping. For this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. I, God, will take this truth of who I am and this covenantal relationship and what I'm going to do is I'm going to transform them from the inside out and I'm going to imprint this on their minds and I'm going to imprint this 
on their hearts. I, God, will do this work. And so what you're going to see here is that this transformation is not something that you and I try to white knuckle. We try to say, okay, i got to do this all in my own power. But what we do is we subject ourselves and say, Lord, here I am. And in that, we know, trusting that the goodness of God is going to come and He's going to transform the way we think and He's going to transform the desires of our hearts. It's an internal transformation instead of an external kind of program or way of living or trying to look good on the outside. So here's the problem. What we got to do is look at the old system and we got to recognize a problem with it. And then we have to do what we have to do is recognize the new system and say, thank God for this new and better covenant that God has given us through Jesus. So the old system, what's the problem with the old system? Well, the old system We've already said it here, but it's external. It was all about the outside. It was, here, here's an example. Um, I was in Germany, Europe, Eastern Europe. Um, I think it was my third or fourth year of high school. I can't remember. And we did a mission trip, and it was a group of us. There was about 15 of us. We all went over. This is before the days. Uh, this was when Czechoslovakia was a thing. Right? What's it called now? I don't know. Slovakia or something. It's like, but this was like, so we, we went through Poland and France and Germany and Czechoslovakia and we spent all this time. And, you know, on a youth dime and you're doing this mission trip, what you do is you, you save up all this money and then you go to these places that will host you. And often these churches that will host you will put, in these, put you up in these compounds. And so uh, us and a bunch of young people are in this kind of compound, so to speak. And, you know, we're showering in the hose. Like, I mean, come on, your pastor suffered for Jesus, all right? So we're showering in the hose. We're doing all this kind of stuff. And one day we're out. This is the, the years when, like, Ultimate Frisbee was really, like, the thing. You know, when people wore Tevas with socks and all that kind of stuff. I mean, this was, like, the epitome of cool. So we're out playing Ultimate Frisbee. We're doing all this cool stuff. And we're all getting hungry. And so what we notice is on the premises are these apricot trees. And we're like, man, that's amazing. And they were just happened to be at the right season. They looked really good. So what do we do? We go around. We're plucking all these apricots. And before dinner, us and a bunch of friends are sitting around. We're just munching on these apricots. We're just killing them. I mean, they are so good, right? All of a sudden, one of my friends just opens up one of the apricots and goes, oh, man, there's a bunch of worms in my apricots. And we're like, oh, that sucks for you, you know? And so then we just keep eating them, and he opens up another one. He's like, man, there's worms in this one too, right? And we're like, uh-oh. Well, maybe we should open up more of them, right? So we start opening up every single apricot had these little tiny white worms going, hello, Right? I must have eaten, I don't know, 10 or 15 of these little things. We all had munched down on them. Now here's the problem with this kind of old system of religion. It looks really, really good on the outside. I mean, if you take like the most honored religions in the world, they have all the like attire, don't they? I mean, like some people will not come into a church like ours because I don't wear certain regalia. I don't have a certain collar, or I you know, don't do my hair, or I wear jeans, or those kind of things. Because they want an external experience and say, if it's going to be real, if it's going to be legit, the guy has to dress like this, the people have to say these certain things, it has to, on the outside, be shiny and polished in order for it to be legitimate. And what the new covenant says is, 
All of that stuff on the outside means diddly squat when it comes to the covenantal relationship that we are meant to have with God because it's not about the external trappings. It's not about all the fancy stuff. I mean, we could be the church that has smoke machines and fogs and lasers, and the lasers could print out like Jesus, right? And we'd be like, whoa, that church is really counting for God because they have lasers that say Jesus We're not going to be that. Why? Because we understand that what counts is what God does on the inside. It's a transformed life. And when he says, I will come and I will imprint my laws on your minds and on your hearts, we know that's where the gold is. Lord, will you do that in us? That's our, our, our role to play. Lord, will you come? I subject myself to your will and your ways. This is what Jesus says about this external stuff. He says this in Matthew chapter 23. He's speaking to the most external religiously people, religious people. The people who appear to have it all together. He says, woe to you, you scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. It doesn't matter what you look like on the outside. It matters what God has done on the inside. And so my challenge to you, are you trying to keep up appearances? Are you trying to look good? Are you trying to, you know, when you have people over, don't we all want our homes to like look nice and smell nice and feel nice? Yes. But see, what we do is we put the emphasis on that, and sometimes people don't get to see the real us, right? They come in our house like, we freak out if somebody's about to come over unexpectedly. Oh my gosh, I think the dog poop's not picked up in the backyard. What are we going to do? And I think the person coming over is probably going to live. It's going to be okay, right? We worry so much about this external. And what God says is, I don't, I'm not, I'm not caring about that. What I want is your hearts and your minds. And you notice that there's two things here, he says, right? Hearts and minds. Hearts and minds. And I would say it both are important, aren't they? And so let's, let's, Talk about the, the, the language of marriage here a little bit. If I only love my wife mentally, if I only do what I know I'm supposed to do, just up here only ever, what, what, what kind of relationship is Marianne going to experience for me? Cold, isn't it? Duty-filled. And she'll probably feel like every time I do something that I'm supposed to do, I mean, we've had these arguments. She's like, babe, are you just loving me because you're supposed to be my husband, Right? And, and she goes, I'm not sure, you know, in her insecurity sometimes, she'll just say little things like that. And I go, no, I want to want to do these things, right? And I think that's the other side of it, too, is that we're meant not only for there to be this understanding of who God is, because that's important to truly love God, you must open up your mind and say, Lord, teach me through your scripture the truth of who you are, because this is important to my salvation. But there has to be the hearts of it, isn't there? There has to be this desire for me to want to want to do what I should do for Marianne. And if we, it, but let's just 
if I only live there, because some of us are more heart than head, if I only live there, then what's going to happen? My relationship with my wife's going to be subjectively emotions, right? Like how, you know what the world says today about this is my truth. You ever hear anybody say something like that? Or like, this is how I feel about it, and so you're being unkind to my feelings, and so my feelings should trump what is real. No, if I live there, then it's going to be like this hot mess of a relationship where all the time it's like, what kind of mood is Kelly going to be in today? But when I marry both of these truths and I say, Lord, in my mind and in my heart, I want to follow you. So same way that I be a husband, same way she's a wife to me. That is what I desire from you. And Lord, I subject myself to this better and more beautiful covenant that's not based on my outside and it's not based on how I look and all the things I say. It's based on what's going on internally. That's a new and better covenant and that's what God is calling us to. Oh dear. We're running out of time. Number two. Not only is it this new and better covenant based on an internal transformation, but look at this. Sin is forgiven and forgotten. This, man, if you are in this new covenant, if you are a follower of Jesus, this should cause you when I say something like that, you're probably like almost wanting to jump out of your chair, right? Yes, woo No, maybe not. Maybe you're like, oh, old hat. Okay, if this feels way familiar to you, you've been a Christian for a long time, can I encourage you, Southlands Chino, to allow this beautiful truth of this better covenant that we have in Christ to well up with inside of you and let it like, when we sing songs, you're like, oh, thank you that my sin is forgiven and forgotten. When you go and you leave this, these rooms this room today and you go out in the highways and the byways, will you let that live inside of you as you react with your neighbors and your friends and your family? Thank you, Jesus, that my sin is forgiven and forgotten. Okay, so let's break it down. Here's what he says in verse 12. I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Thank you, Jesus. Now here, here's the problem with the old covenant. The old system, this is the way this was worked. It required retribution when anybody or somebody in this party, covenant party, messed up. But the problem is that you and I are the ones that always mess up and we have nothing to make retribution with. We got nothing. Now, here's the problem with religion. Religion says, oh, we don't have anything to make retribution with. Let's create a system that will somehow, we think, appease God when we mess up. So if the more I do, the more things I say that are right, the more fancy I dress and the bigger hats I wear and the stuff, all these kind of things, that'll make God really impressed about me. And so he'll overlook the bad things that I did and this will be retribution. The problem is that doesn't, satisfy God. Here's the better covenant. Sin is forgiven. Period. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Sin is forgiven. Now, he uses this word merciful. Now, we have to understand the context of who the hearers are. These would have been Jewish Christians who understood this tabernacle understanding of the presence of God. They would have understood that a priest 
once a year would go into this tent, and what he would do is, you ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones? Some of us, most of us, okay. If you haven't, there's a, a, there's a point in the movie where Indiana is trying to find the lost Ark of the Covenant. And it's gold, and it's got the angels that are doing this, right, facing each other, remember? And they're holding the poles, and so this is what would be, so to speak, in this room. And I'm almost going to pull you up, but I'm not going to do it. Okay, so there's one angel here, right? And there's one angel here on this side. And they're bowing, and they're covering their eyes and their body with their wings and their feet because of the holiness of God. And in the center of this is what the Bible calls the mercy seat. The mercy seat. And if you were a Jewish Christian, you would fully understand this. Because why? Because once a year, someone, a person, on your behalf, because of your sin, would go into the presence of God, and before the mercy seat, what they would do is they would take the animal's blood, and they would pour blood over the mercy seat of the Ark of Covenant. Of the Ark of Covenant. Now get this. You know what was inside that Ark? The law. The stone tablets. The thing that people said, if I do those perfectly, God will be happy with me. But because God knows you and I cannot keep those laws perfectly, what He would have to do is pour blood over them for the sacrifice and for people to be appeased, so to speak, with God's wrath against their sin. Now, when the writer of Hebrews tells them, you're under a better covenant now because no longer do you have to make sacrifices with bulls and animals and pigeons and all these kind of things and pour blood over this mercy seat over the law because you aren't able to keep it. God has sacrificed His Son on your behalf and is merciful to you just like the mercy seat because of the blood of Christ on your behalf. And so when we sit here this morning and go, Lord, thank You that we have a better covenant, it's because the mercy that we received is because the mercy seat has been filled on our behalf. I hope that makes sense. That's a little bit of nerdery there for you. I think also one of the most beautiful things about this too is we see that sin is forgotten. Not only is it forgiven, but it's forgotten. Now, what is, what is the writer saying here? That God all of a sudden like gets the spiritual amnesia, you know? And he's like, oh, we like, oh, I don't remember when Luke looked at me really mean, you know? Or when he said that, you know, when Anthony, usually smiling, but that one day he just... He said the darn word. He was like, darn you, you know. That's probably as mean as Anthony gets, right? <laughs> darn you. <laughs> Melody's like, nope. Okay. <laughs> Does God just be like, oh, I, or does he try to play it off? You know how we awkwardly, when someone hurts our feelings, and they're like, oh, I'm sorry, and you're like, oh, I, I didn't even notice, you know. <laughs> no. He forgets in, in the sense that he chooses not to remember our sin. Now, why is that significant? Could you imagine being in a marriage where every time that you messed up, your spouse is like, I'm never going to let you let that down. Never. You know that one time that you did this? Oh, it seems like that's happening again. What a hellish marriage. See, this is why marriage represents the beauty of the Gospel. Because when Marianne hurts me, and it might be the same 
sin that she has done over and over. And when I do the same thing to her, it might be the same sin that I do over and over. She is not meant to go, you always and you never, right? Those are the two words we're not supposed to use in marriage. You always, unless it's like, you always look amazing, right? (laughs) But a good marriage is one where she says, babe, I'm not going to hold that over your head. Why? Because then how do I feel? Guilty. Guilty. How's my... Oh, I know I did this again. How dare I even try to like say I'm sorry? How dare I even have the audacity to go to my wife and will you forgive me? And we do the same thing with God. We do the same thing. We think that He's like, I remember when you were 16 and you did that thing. How dare you think you could be a part of this church? Everybody else in here never did anything like you did when you were 16. I know the thing that you thought about yesterday. How dare you think that you can just be all like raising your hands and singing songs. You should be like totally under the condemnation of your sin until you pay for it. And then once you start to feel the guilt and you feel the shame, then you can kind of like slowly get back into this boldness of declaring your freedom in Christ. No, friends, that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is not the better covenant. The better covenant of Jesus says your sin is fully forgiven and God remembers your sin no more forever. That is such good news for us. Is that alive in you? I don't know if it's totally alive in me. I wrestle with, I, you know what? Because I feel like, man, there should be, should be something I got to do, right? I mean, this feels blasphemous. This feels wrong that somebody would say that my sin is completely forgiven and that God remembers my sin no more, and that I, I shouldn't carry around a little bit of guilt. I mean, a little bit of guilt is good because it makes me do good things. See, that's the way of the old system. That's religion. And although I think we need to feel a little fear about not wanting to just do whatever we want because God's holy, I think, friends, if we really understood the grace of God, we really understood his forgiveness and the fact that the the next time I go to present myself before God and I come and say, God, will you accept me? If if we really understood that he's like, absolutely. And imagine imagine the, the, the freedom you would have in this life. Imagine the freedom you would have from other people's thoughts and, and, and the way people think about you and the way you, you feel about the things that you've done in your past. Imagine every time when the enemy comes to you and says, I know what you did. Or your own condemning heart says, uh-uh, uh-uh. Imagine how you were able to just say, eh, shut up. Jesus knows everything. There's nothing hidden from him. And yet, he chose to forgive me. Imagine what kind of people we'd be if we lived under that kind of freedom. That's the better covenant. The old covenant, the old way is like feel guilty, feel sad, feel shame. All right. You know, you, let me just 
A beautiful verse here that every preacher loves to say, but it's Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. How far is the east from the west? This far? I mean, it's just, I, I don't know when that, exactly the day that that scripture was written. But let's say it was a hundred years ago, and we know it's not, but let's just use an easy number. Well, from a hundred years ago from when it was written, that timeline has been internally moving away from itself. And it was not just written a hundred years ago, it was written thousands of years ago, but that truth has been true since eternity. And it's true for every single person in this room. If you've put your hope and your faith in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. All right, last one. There's always three, isn't there? Number three is that we see that this covenant is better because it's an unbreakable promise. This is what the writer says in verse 10 through 11. Halfway through, down the bottom of verse 10, he says, I will be their God. They shall be my people. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Verse 11. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Now, here's the problem with the old system. The old system required perfect fidelity on both parties, didn't it? Perfect fidelity. Because if we see in verse 9, you you see where like God says, hey, they didn't keep my commandments, and so I sent them away. Because why? It was based on this old system that if you keep my commandments, God says, then we we can work this out. But because Israel, over and over and over and over again, every single time that God would say, come, be faithful to me, and they say, oh, I promise, I promise, and then what do they do? They would go and sell themselves, so to speak, to something else. I mean, you even see where God wants this to be so clear in people's minds that he asked the prophet Hosea, what does he tell him to do? Go and marry a prostitute. Marry a prostitute. But Lord, this is wrong. I know, but I want you to marry a prostitute. But Lord, this, this woman will not be faithful to me. I know. And in your marrying of her, I want you to be faithful to her. I want you to continue to support and protect and supply and be a faithful husband. But Lord, she will not. I know. This is how Israel is to me. And this will be a picture for everyone to see the character of who I am. Because when you are not faithful, God will be faithful. This is what Timothy tells us. Even in our unfaithfulness, God is still faithful. And so what we sit under this new and better covenant, part of, it might, part of us might still feel like, okay, I get all these, like the grace and the freedom and the forgiveness I get, and this, that's amazing, but like, what do I do with my heart and my mind that even though God has written on them, I still live in this, this flesh. I still live here. And I still wrestle with the things that I want to do. And sometimes, in my temptation, what I do is I give over to those temptations and I obey them instead of the Lord. What do I do with that? Does that mean that God in His holiness has cut me out? And I want to say, friends, yes and no. What do you mean by that, Kelly? 
Well, let's unpackage it here. Here's some truths that we know about this new and better covenant. If it's unbreakable, then we know that God is never the one who is unfaithful in this relationship. Never. He is never unfaithful. So that gives us some security, doesn't it? As followers of Jesus, no matter how good or bad we are, no matter how obedient or disobedient we, in, in seasons of life that we find ourselves, we know that God will always, only ever be the faithful one. Every single time. And that's not dependent on our uh, nature and our ability. That is based on the truth and the character of who God is. He's always faithful. So I know that if God has said something, what's going to happen? It's going to happen. If God has declared a truth about Himself, boom, it is eternally true. Okay? Now, God will never be unfaithful. Now, here's the problem with this. Does God just say, well, I'm the faithful one, and so therefore you're the unfaithful one, and so what I'm going to do is just be a doormat for you. I'm just going to be a doormat because we all know God is love and God is grace and God is mercy. And, and because God is love and God is grace and God is mercy, He continually just is a doormat for us and we could do whatever we want and He will be faithful to us because that's His character. I want to say, friends, no a thousand percent. Well, wait a minute, Kelly. You're saying on one hand that God will forgive me, but on the other hand that He requires something of my fidelity. He requires me to be faithful to Him. He does. And the problem is you can't do it. You ever try to be 100% faithful to God? Anybody ever try that? I have. Anybody ever succeed? Raise your hand. Nobody's raising... Okay, I put my hand down. Nobody's raising their hand. Why? Because we can't do it. What does God do then? If He says, I'm going to be the faithful one, you aren't, but this promise is going to be unbreakable. Somebody's got to pay. Don't they? Somebody has to pave the way for us. Somebody has to be perfect for us on our behalf because we can't do it. And here, friends, is the beauty of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And this theme that we continue to see every week in Hebrews is that Jesus is better. Because God does demand our fidelity. God does say, you must be 100% faithful to Me. But He knows that you and I cannot keep that promise. And so what He did on our behalf is stepped in our place. And He said, I will be the faithful one and I will take upon Myself, even though I am perfect, I will take upon the infidelity of the world. I will take it upon My shoulders. And what I will do is I will fully absorb all of that sin, all of that infidelity, and I will take it upon myself. And so when God says, I need a perfect person to be in relationship with, I cannot be in relationship with anybody who is not perfect. What I will do is, because I want relationship with these imperfect people, I will see my son upon them so that therefore I can have relationship with them. And when Jesus died on the cross, as we celebrated last week on Good Friday, and as we, last week on Sunday, as we were saying, thank you, Jesus, for your victory over sin and death, what we're doing is we're remembering the fact that we were, we had infidelity. 
that we cheated and that we continue to sin and that we have imperfection. But what Jesus did is He came and He stood in our place and He said, I'm the perfect one, but I will take their imperfection. And because God is holy and He demands in order to have a relationship with Him that you too be perfect, what I will do is I'll take your sin and then what I'll do is I'll exchange it for my perfection. I'll give you my perfect fidelity in your place. What a better covenant. What a beautiful, unbreakable promise. See, if we go and run back toward religion and go, man, I messed up, therefore God can't accept me. What we do is, man, I messed up, I run back to the cross. I run back to this beautiful truth that in this unbreakable covenant, it doesn't matter how good or bad I am. It matters if I placed myself and my trust and my hope in Jesus and I receive from Him His righteousness. Not my own righteousness. That counts for nothing. This is the better system. This is the better covenant. And I would throw out to you and myself again this morning, do you believe it? Do you live in it? Is this alive in your heart? Are you allowing this truth to not only affect your vertical relationship with God, but how you relate to one another? I mean, I know we talked a lot about marriage this morning. Every single time that I tend to get grumpy or grouchy with my wife because she's not doing something that I... It's because I'm not understanding this truth of the gospel that God should get grumpy with me all the time. And I somehow think, well, forgiveness was owed to me, but not to her. And so I withhold it. It, it reacts the way you, with your children, doesn't it? The way you work, the way you act with your neighbors. If his fence is one centimeter over the property line. All of these kind of ridiculous things that we do because we don't understand the truth of the gospel and this better covenant that we have the privilege of living in because we've been saved by grace. That's our call this morning. That's what God has for us in this Hebrews beautiful chapter 8 verses 6 through 13 is to say Lord thank you that it's not based on my ability because I couldn't do it it's based on what you already did let's pray together this morning Jesus we honestly sit here this morning and just want to say thank you if there's, if there's any coldness in our heart where we have lost the wonder of this new and better covenant that we have been placed in, uh, will you remind us this morning again of the, the privilege that it is, of the, how much we did not earn it and it was actually in spite of the fact that we did not deserve your grace and your mercy that you made a way for us in our sin. Still, the Bible says, while we were still sinners. And God, we, we just ask, Holy Spirit, will you help us to revel? Will you help us to live in this? Will you, will you remind us of this beautiful truth? that's been afforded to us and it was paid for 
through your son. So Jesus, we say thank you for dying the death that we deserve. Thank you for raising again three days later, being victorious over the things that hold us down. And as we go to the communion tables today, will you rekindle and refresh this better covenant that we now get to partake in and live in. Will you help it to be alive in us as your people? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.